Hi, Nick Vince here. This week on The Chattering Hour, I'm joined by Tom Holland, an actor turned writer and director, and responsible for some of the most well-known and influential horror films, titles such as Psycho 2, Fright Night, Child's Play, The Beast Within, and Stephen King's Thinner. Up next on The Chattering Hour, Tom Holland. And we're back with Tom Holland. Holland created vampires, resurrected Norman Bates, created child killer dolls, and even tackled gypsy curses with Stephen King. And he's also currently writing a novel, a sequel to Fright Night. What I'm going to do, is, if I may, is I'm going to take you right back, um, right back to a childhood in Pocket. See, I always do this with American names, Pocket. Pokipsy. It's an Indian name. It's an Indian name. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. And were you born there? I was up? born in Vassar Hospital in Poughkeepsie, yes. And I and I spent I spent I grew up in Highland, New York, which is across the river, across the Hudson River, on what they called the Bear Mountain or West Point side, and uh, it was it was it at the time it was it was really it was really your it was it was a tiny town uh, surrounded by apple orchards and dairy farms and uh, one church at the end Protestant church. And a Civil War monument on the way on the way out out of town, and uh, now it it it's exploded because it's in the Hudson Valley, which right. is really beautiful. I mean, it's less mid-state New York. It's lovely, and uh, all they they put the freeway out from New York City right into New Paltz, which is where my mother's family is from they were right. dutch and uh all the new yorkers especially now fleeing new york city and fleeing covid it's become like it's become like the the poor man's hamptons right but it's not that poor you know so i mean it's it's now it's become terribly sophisticated and gentrified and all the rest of it and you know and, oh my goodness but when I was there, mm -hmm. you know, small town. Small town, so kind of idyllic childhood? Well, no oh boy. Uh, well, I, it was an interesting childhood. Right. I was born in 1943. 1943 is two years after Pearl Harbor. Which they didn't, which they hardly even remembered to celebrate about a week or so ago. Okay. But Pearl Harbor, when I was growing up, was still one of the most vivid memories in America. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so when my father got discharged from the, from, from the armed services, he was over fighting in North Africa. 
We went to Burbank, California, which is where which was all discharged GIs. And Burbank was where aerospace was in the late 40s. It's where Boeing and uh, I can't Lockheed anyway. Right. It's where all the arm where they made all the planes for you know for the armed services at that moment in time. And we would so I remember I remember LA and the San Fernando Valley when it was still orange groves and uh, they grew some kind of nut here too. And they had uh, pecans and they had uh, sheep ranches in the San Fernando Valley. And if you look out now, it's a megapolis and they're putting up wherever the subway stops, they're putting up these huge tall buildings because some urban planners have gotten it into their heads that it's going to be a wonderful life if there's an increased density in the urban areas, which of course is making them more and more unlivable. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. so my father moved back to New York, mid-state New York, in I guess around 1953 or four. The first headline that I remember reading as a small boy was Stalin dies exclamation point on the, on the newspaper. And that must've been, I'd have to look it up, but that must've been like 52 or three. Yeah. And my, 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 my mother was my mother and grandfather were from Highland, New York. And my parents sent me up there every weekend. My parents had a small mom and pop clothing store. This was in, this was in the day when you could still work for yourself, you know, and small business was encouraged. Yeah. This was in, this was in the fifties. And my memory is the influences on my, I became a prolific reader. I loved reading and going to movies. You? Yeah. Yes, exactly the same. It was mostly reading. I think when I left home, I think kind of like, 18, we decided to count up and I got 2000 books in my bedroom. Wow. Just, just insane. And I read them all. Couldn't, I couldn't couldn't honestly remember them all, but it was just like, you know, it was a book in a weekend or a really thick novel, novel, Thomas Covenant, Tales of Thomas Covenant, uh, that thick book, 600 odd pages. That would take me a week and just. Okay. Mine were. I was there at the dawn of science fiction. Right. So I was reading all of Robert Heinlein and Asimov, all the great science fiction writers, but I must've been, I don't know, 10, 11, 12, I, you know, someplace in there, uh-huh. and they were a huge influence on me. And then the, the movies, especially all the B movies, all the terrible science fiction movies, the late four, late fifties. Them is still one of the great movies of my life. And that's the one about the giant ants. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and you know, and I'd, I'd go up to Highland and spend every weekend up there because my parents were, were working six-day weeks. My mother worked with my father. Right. That's what mom and pops were like. You know, you didn't have the money to, to hire help. You were the help as well, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and uh, 
I don't know. I fell in love with movies and 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 and, and books, and at some point in there, I know when I I saw Psycho. Okay, which was nine. That's later. That's yeah. like nineteen sixty or sixty one. Yeah, but that's the first time I realized that film was was edited, that it was bits of pieces put together. Before then, I'd grown up on the Hammer films, right. you know, and the AIP films, and the Hammer films were, of course, were were all sort of wide shots masters because they had those wonderful sets, yeah. you know, that they, that they did, and it was all heavily saturated, very, you know, very very colorful. But if you if you did an insert, it was amazing in a hammer film. You know, there were, you know, you never got closer than an over the shoulder, I don't think, or a two shot. <clears throat> and I don't know, I wanted I I it was in Cohate because I didn't know anybody that was that was in the that it was in the business. Mm -hmm. And I didn't I didn't have any way in. There wasn't anybody I could even talk to. You know, I mean, are you from a small town or? Yeah, I'm kind of near uh, one of the Gatwick Airport. Um, grew up near there, but kind of urban, kind of rural, urbanish. Um, okay, well, quite a small, you know, um, okay. and nobody in the family any interest in acting or anything. My no, not 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 in me. No, it was inconceivable. Yeah, my. My mother said to me, my parents were Depression-era children. They'd been raised. Yeah. They'd hit their, 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 their youthful teenage years in the 30s. Yeah. And that was the, the height of the, of the, of the Depression. Yeah. And that was, it was, it was, a, it was an event that, that shaped that generation. It's hard to imagine now. Yeah. But that's the generation that went off to fight World War II. Yeah. Yeah. Also, but I mean, my mother said to me that I should get a job with the post office because it was a federal job and they couldn't fire you. <laughs> but I mean, that that's how deeply scarred they were by by the by the by the economic insecurity of the Depression. America didn't recover from the Depression until World War II. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, it was it was it was really hand to mouth. This okay. is, for, I didn't experience that, but this is from them. Yes. What, what happened is, I mean, I was born in 43 because my father went off to fight in World War II. Yeah. And, you know, they, they made it, they wanted to leave something behind and it was me. Yeah. And he, he was, he was lucky enough to survive and come back. So anyway, we, you know, so I, I ended up, I ended up growing up in the in mid-state New York and there was nobody that had any interest in movies that I could find. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Sorry, I was going to, no, no, it's fine. So this is, is this why you went to law school? No, 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 I did that. What I, what happened is I, I found a drama teacher who got me into, into uh, uh, an apprenticeship, a Bucks County Playhouse in the summer of my 16th birthday. And from that, I learned about acting classes in New York City. Right. And so I started going to into New York City on Saturdays 
to go study at what they then called the HB studio on Bank Street, 22 Bank Street, Herbert Berghoff. I can't remember anything from yesterday, but I can remember pretty well from 50, 60 years ago. Anyway, the, the, because it was, it, I was trying to get closer to film, but there wasn't any, there were no film schools. I mean, it's hard to imagine now, but it isn't that long ago. I'm talking about the early sixties. Right. And I, 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 I said, okay, I'll be an actor because that was the only thing that I could, that I could get, you know, the, the get me closer to, to movies. Right. And from that, I got a year at Northwestern Films, Northwestern Theater School. And Northwestern's a very good middle, uh, 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 Midwestern uh, school right. in Chicago. And they didn't even have a film school. The film school, they had, film, they had one film class and it was one room where they had 16 millimeter projectors. And they had cold splicers where you had to wear white gloves, if any of this makes any sense, because it sounds like the year of one. And I got, a, I got hold of a, of a 16 mil camera there and a guy to help me. And I went out and I shot my first film. And I was 18 or 19. And then that summer, after my first year at Northwestern, I went, I went into New York to be, to be an actor, into acting classes. And I got a seven-year contract at Warner Brothers. And I was, yeah, and I came out here to L.A. And I was 19, I think. And it was 1963. It was the year that JFK was assassinated. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I was out here under contract to Warner Brothers. And that was when the studios have been wiped out by television. And their, their, their whole business model of, you know, of having a captive audience that went to the theaters, you know, you know, at least two times a week, all that mm. fell apart. And they went into the business of producing TV series. And then that fell apart. And as that was falling apart, I was at Warner Brothers. And I was there as, a, as an actor. And what I really did was I haunted the editing rooms. And I haunted the, the, the post-production, you know, you know, learning about dubbing and sound and everything. And, but they still had, they still had the, the set standing to My Fair Lady, which was the, the biggest soundstage at Warner Brothers where the Ascot races were. They had, that's, that set was still standing. <clears throat> they had the exterior set to Camelot still standing. Out where 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 Columbia was now, I I don't know. I guess it's Warner's now too, but that was there, and they were shooting Robin and the Seven Hoods, <clears throat> which was Frank Sinatra and the Rat Pack, mm -hmm. and I would go sneak in the door and I would stand there and I would watch them. I watched Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. And, you know, and I was like 19 years old and from mid-state New York and didn't know anything at all. So I wanted to, I, I really wanted to make film, but it, I, could, I don't think I was even, I don't think I could even express it because it, 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 at that moment in time, the business was very nepotistic. Mm. It was, it was really a matter of whether or not you were born in it. 
and that that didn't include just the just the 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 the, 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 the executive ranks. It also was the whole union structure that went to IATSE, to the to the people who really made the films, the workers, you know, the the grips, the electricians. That was passed down generation to generation because they were good union jobs. This would probably make sense to you in England. Yeah, yeah. it was. It was at that point in time, America was very unionized. Yeah, yeah. and. Uh, so I so I learned a lot, and then of course I was released from contract because all their television series were falling apart. I acted in the last year of '77 Sunset Strip. I did a Temple Houston, which was uh, the name just slipped out of my head, but the very very good looking guy who played Jesus Christ in uh, in uh, King of Kings, I think it was. Oh, yes, boy. I know. I can almost picture the face, but it's... Yeah, it was really handsome. Yeah. And anyway, you know, I mean, so I I got a taste of it, and I, 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 I saw the last gasp of the classical film era, is what I saw when I was 19 years old. So, I mean, because you were lucky enough to do um, a walk in the spring rain with Anthony Quinn and Ingrid Bergman. Well, that was that. later. I, I think I was, was. That was later. That was that was 1969. I I was an actor until until about 19. I, I yeah I did that, which I couldn't believe. I was with the woman who was the who was the, who was the heroine of, of Casablanca. I couldn't. I, you know, I just sat there with my mouth hanging open. The. Uh, and you you know who you know who the who the who the the stunt coordinator was? No, Bruce Lee. Ah, yeah, Bruce wow. Lee. Bruce Lee choreographed my 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 my, my stunts, my fights, and my death. Anyway, the uh, but what I started doing was I got in the actor's studio in L.A. and maybe around 1968. It was it was still Lee Strasberg. And they had a they had a playwrights wing, and you do the, the the writers there would put their one act plays up, and there were a lot of screenwriters there, and they put up their 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 one act plays, and they'd even direct them, and I started acting in them, and I met a lot of a lot of writers then who were very hot in in the business, and one of them was Jim Bridges. Who directed Paper Chase, among other things, and I and there were there were a number of them, but I can't remember the names now anymore. But that that gave me for the first time, it gave me the idea that if I could write a screenplay, I might be able to direct it, because that's what they were all trying to do. Now I'm back 1968, nine seventy, and at the same time. Because I'm a nice middle class boy, uh, I went back. I got myself back into college at UCLA, and this this was one you could. It was it was inexpensive enough. You could work and put yourself through college at the same time, and I had acting, and I was also doing commercials, and I was doing commercials in front of the camera, but also behind the camera. 
picking up extra day day work, day day jobbing. I, right. I can't remember, but it was a lot of money. It was like $50, $75 a day. Wow. You know, for lugging equipment around, you know, you know. And so I was I was doing all that and going to UCLA at the same time. And I had walk in the spring rain. And then I was I was the co-star or the co-lead in a pilot called the Young Lawyers, uh, along with Salman King and Judy Pace. I was acting under the name of Tom Fielding. There was another Tom Holland when I came into the guild. He was a voiceover artist. And then he passed. And now there's a, there's a British kid named Tom Holland. Tom Holland seems to have been a very popular name all my life. Anyway, when I, when I started, when I went back to school and I started writing, I used my real name of Tom Holland and not Tom Fielding, but all the acting credits are under Tom Fielding. I worked, I worked a lot as an actor. I really did. Right. But the, 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 my mother was always shouting in my ear have something to back it up you know because it obviously isn't the most stable of 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 of, of, yeah 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 so i graduated ucla i think 1971 and by that time i was writing screenplays right badly but you know but i mean I, 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 I thought, well, I better have some kind of a degree that, that means something and having a, 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 a bachelor of science or, you know, what a bachelor of arts in political science wasn't worth very much. So I went to law school at UCLA and I, I went through the first year and I realized I had made a terrible mistake. You know, I mean, I was really a fish out of water. I was, I couldn't, I couldn't keep my eyes open for boredom. And, uh, but it was easier to say I was in law school than that I was an aspiring screenwriter. And if you know anything about law school, at least here in America, if you make it through the first year, you can really sort of coast for the next two. Right. Because the first year is the one where they make it so tough, they wash you out. And right. I got through that. So I figured, what the hell? I kept on going to, to law school. I didn't really go. I, 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 was, writing, I was writing screenplays, and I was, I was using the notes of a, of, a, of a very, very bright guy a year ahead of me called Peter Deckham, lawyer. And I went through I went through the last two years of law school on somebody else's notes, but I was writing screenplays. And then I took the bar, and while I was waiting to find out whether or not I passed, I sold my first screenplay. Okay, so I was like, I must have been like, I was like thirty or thirty-one years old. And I remember, I remember one of the screenplays. That the title of one of the screenplays was "The View from 30, which which tells you what my age was. And uh, I, I sold my first screenplay. I have the, I have a photocopy of the check on the wall. Believe it or not, 
<laughs> and uh, the uh, I thought to myself, well, I've been poor so long as a student, you know that 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 I I might as well take a, a roll of the dice with the writing, and because I because I'm used to being poor, I can be poor for a few more years or whatever and see what happens. And I had the law degree and I had passed the bar. So I had that in my back pocket or what my mother would have called something to fall back on. Right. And uh, I remember going to my first law school reunion and everybody else was working and buying their first house and getting married. And I was still starving to death. And I thought, oh my goodness, I have made a horrible mistake here, but there, there you are. And then, then I get, I guess after about five years, after I passed the bar, I started to sell as a screenwriter. So, I mean, so when people ask me, well, how do you, how do you become a screenwriter? How do you become a director? I say, everybody has their own journey. <laughs> Because God knows mine zigzagged all across <laughs> right. the place. What about you? Well, how did, how did you get here? How did I get here? Basically, school uh, interviewed for the post office, funnily enough, after, after school, got into the tax office, went to drama school. Shortly thereafter, met a young man called Clive Barker, who asked me to be in a film. And that's how I ended up with Hellraiser. And that's, you know, been plugging away at different things and different and leaving the business, coming back to the business, all that kind of thing. Clive, you, has, Clive has been very kind to me over the years. Clive gave me a great blurb on, on my book, The Notch, which is on Amazon Kindle, everybody. But anyway, Clive, you know, Clive has been, Clive has been extremely supportive. And he, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, yeah, that that that's the man I know. He's incredibly encouraging. He's always encouraging me to write and get my finger out and actually put pen to paper. Well, he he told me the story that he'd been at a horror convention in Texas back in 1984, uh -huh. and and the night that Fright Night opened, he and a number of other of his friends from the from the horror convention went to see it. And Fright Night was one of the great evenings of his life, which is why he's always been kindly disposed towards me, which is a lovely story. And I had read, I, I came across Book of Blood, books of, book of, what was a Book of Blood? Books of Blood. Yeah. Books, plural. Plural, yeah. And I came across that when, just after Fright Night had come out. I was on my way to to Sitges to the film festival to premiere Fright Night there, which was probably 1985. And I stopped in England on the way through, and people were talking about Clive Barker and Books of Blood, and that's when I started to read him. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. I'd known him around, so those were being published, and in fact, modeled for the front covers of some of the British. You can see me with my knife sticking out of my head, and so. Oh, on. really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, but every you know, but I mean, don't don't young people ask you how how did you ever become? Oh yeah, absolutely. And again, you you it's that 
I think it's it's the old adages, isn't it, Tom? It's you know, it's a hell of a lot of hard work. It's a hell of a lot of luck as well. You know, it's just the right thing. But I think the hard work goes into being prepared for the luck when it happens. So you can take the- Well, yes. I mean, I can't underline that enough. I'll also say perseverance is a synonym for luck. Yes. But all but uh, but I'll also tell you the you know, everything that my mother said to me is true too. It's nice if you have skills or a second, you know, avocation besides the arts to back it up. Because, you know, I mean, I, I, have a, I have a number of friends who are up against it at this point, you know, for various reasons. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. But you've mentioned Fright Night, but I wanted to go back a little bit earlier because before you did Fright Night, you wrote Psycho 2, speaking of Psycho being a huge influence. How did it come about that you got the gig of writing Psycho 2? I had after after almost if I graduated UCLA Law School in 1974, five years later, 1979, 1980, I had my first film that I had written released. It was called The Beast Within. Right. Okay. And it was it was United Artists, and it was released concurrently with the bankruptcy of United Artists because of Michael Cimino's Western movie, Heaven's Gate, which bankrupted the company. And The Beast Within is the last release, last theatrical release of United Artists before it went bankrupt. And it was a success, but financially at the theaters, but nobody knew because because the, the all the publicity and everything was about how Heaven's Gate had ruined, you know, United Artists, and they mm-hmm. wrote a book on it. I forget what the title is. So I finally, after five six years, had my first movie made, and then nobody knew. You know, I mean, and the movie had been successful, but nobody knew. So it did absolutely nothing for my writing career. I mean, in other, in other words, I was, I was, I was still, you know, and so in 1982, Richard Franklin, the Australian director called me up. He'd read one of my scripts and really liked it. And he was doing the sequel to Psycho to Psycho and a nobody did sequels then b it wasn't a theatrical it was an early cable movie if you look on the credits it says oak communications which was a cable service in san diego so what what universal did was they made a deal to sell a cable movie with a sequel of psycho because nobody thought that it would be worth anything nor thought that it would attract any attention and i got to meet with richard because every more established writer in hollywood had turned it down nobody wanted to write a, a sequel to, to to psycho because 
Psycho was already at that point, was already a classic. And everybody knew that they were going to get killed, raped, decimated for having the temerity to do a sequel to the classic horror film. And so I got an opportunity and I was so desperate for, for a job and, and, and for a chance to establish myself. Now, remember, I'm, tr- I'm trying not just to become a writer, a screenwriter. I'm trying to use screenwriting to get an opportunity to direct. Right. Okay. So, so I got Psycho too, And I, I, I said to Richard, I said, the only way that this is going to work is if we get Tony Perkins to play Norman Bates. No Tony. Nobody's going to care about a, about a sequel to Psycho 2. And Richard, Richard, the Australian director, knew he was going to get killed too for, for, for daring to direct the sequel to, to Psycho. Uh, Richard, Richard graduated USC, and working with him was like having an elongated graduate course in filmmaking specifically Hitchcock and John Ford. Mm-hmm. They were his two heroes, which, which is not a, not bad, not bad people to have as heroes. And I worked harder on that screenplay than I think I have on any other, because I had to be faithful to the given circumstances of the original because I figured that was the best protection I had against the critics savaging me. And you knew going in, they were going to savage you. And then the other problem, I had to write a script that was actor's bait to get Tony Perkins to come back and play Norman. And the, I had the best, having been and, and being an actor, Actually, actually, I stopped acting in 1982 before this with Winds of War, which was a big miniseries of the time. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was my last, you know, Ruben Cannon was right. the casting director. Thank you, Ruben. He cast me in it. I knew how to, how to write a character arc that would attract an actor. And one of the great things about psycho the original was it made you feel sorry for the serial killer norman Mm. it didn't explain why well you knew it was his mother but then you know this was in the freudian time and everything was mom's fault you know the uh so i i i wrote i i think a, a great part for norman bates and it worked Tony read it and he loved it. He loved having the, he loved the part of Norman Bates, the, 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 the acting. Mm-hmm. And he said, yes. And universal who thought they who thought they had a throwaway little movie with psycho Two, They put out a press release saying Tony Perkins is back to play Norman Bates in psycho Two, And the entire world went crazy. And then it was at that point that Universal said, hey, maybe this is more than a cable movie. Maybe this is a feature film. Not that they gave us any money because they didn't. We did that movie 
without the studio overhead for $5 million, which even then was nothing. Okay. That's how much faith universal had in it. And I, I was like lightning striking. It was, it was the last get together of everybody who had really worked with Alfred Hitchcock. And when it was released in the summer of 1982, people don't remember this now, but it was the second biggest grossing movie in the summer of 1982 after the first release, the first, the release of the first sequel to Star Wars. So right after Star Wars was Psycho 2. And that launched my career. Right. That right. really launched it. But 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 think of it now, Nicholas. I I'd been I've been working since 1963. And I'm talking now 1982. So almost 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. To get to, to, to get a career going. Which is the comes back to the perseverance that you were you were referring to earlier. But you need you need some luck, like you're talking about yeah. Clive casting you. Yeah, you, you you need some luck. Uh, but I mean, I I I don't want to I don't want to sell per. You want to sell hope to all the younger people that are watching this. Mm-hmm. But you want to sell some reality too, because since I've spent my life doing this and have all kinds of friends who are actors. Almost all of them have second jobs. Yeah. You know, I mean, let, let's be honest about it, especially acting. So, you know, there's you've so a, a little bit of caution is required also. Yes, it's what we always used to refer to as pay the rent jobs. Yes. You, yes. You, that is the reality of an actor's life, is that you've just got to have a pay the rent job because That's I right. think equity, the actors union over here, which I'm sure you're familiar with, published the figures just, you know saying the number of people who actually make a career is like in single digit percentages. Infinitesimal. Yeah. Infinitesimal. Yeah. And we just had, we just said, no, that, that, I'll, I'll, I'll segue for a second. We just had something horrible happen here. SAG, Screen Actors Guild, mm-hmm. had guaranteed lifetime health to all the actors who had at least 20 years 20 qualifying years and your pension and your health plan vested mm-hmm. sag just broke that agreement obviated that agreement and everybody who's over 65 who thought that they and their spouse had had health care through the union was told no they don't because the union was going broke and the health care a lot because of COVID because COVID just crushed the business here, you know? So, I mean, it, I have, so I have a number of friends now who are, who are, you know, I, I can't lie about it. I'd love to tell you I'm still 23, but I, I'm unfortunately it's not true or fortunately it's not true. I don't think I want to go through it again anyway, <laughs> but I can't even, I can't even claim to be 40 or 50, but the, the, that's been a terrible, terrible thing. Yeah. So many of my friends, because yeah. now you have, they have to pay for an HMO, uh, which is what they call them here. These, you know, health groups mm, here mm, mm. 
it's, it's, I think it's amount to about $7,000 more a year for them. And then another 7,000 for their wives or their, or their, or their partners. So, I mean, all of a sudden people who thought that they were covered because they'd spent so many years in the union, making mm-hmm. a living and paying union dues. Yeah. The union has broken that agreement. Yeah. And that has caused a huge furor here in Hollywood. And they just did a class action suit, which is a lawsuit to try to stop the union from doing it. But the union, of course, is broke. So yeah. because of, because, I mean, I, you know, so it's a horrible mess. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Well, that's, that's a... Yeah, but important yeah. and very important. The, um, I mean, obviously, once you, you John Psycho 2, you had that big success. And I think your big next really big project from you is when you really get to do what you were hoping to do all the time, which is to write and direct. And that is with Fright Night. Was that a, a short gestation for the script of Fright Night? Did that just come? and then happened quickly after Psycho 2? Or was that something you've been working on anyway? I, 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 I stayed with Richard Franklin, and I wrote Cloak and Dagger, right. which was a juvenile version of, of supposedly of The Window, which was the adolescent version of Rear Window by the same writer. Right. A book writer, and the name just popped out of my head naturally. The uh, and supposedly Cloak and Dagger, Cloak and Dagger was an original, but but the the, the, the book it was based on the window was a boy looks out the window sees a murder next door. It's a it's a cry wolf story. Yeah, and I said, you know, I said uh, it's very very hard to modernize this, Richard. And if you really wanted to make this, you know, with, with looking at something happening out the window, the kid should be a horror movie fan, and he should become convinced that his next-door neighbor is a vampire. <laughs> That's an original movie that would draw people. And Richard said, you're crazy. That's an insane idea. Okay? And uh, I couldn't convince anybody at Universal either. They said, no, we want the window. You know, the, the kid sees... So that ended up being a, a kid playing a role-playing game who sees a spy being murdered and inadvertently ends up with the plans that everybody's after. Yeah. And that's Cloak and Dagger, which I thought was a terrific movie, but it seems like it's forgotten now. But it was it was very, very popular with with all the adolescent boys who, you know, grew up in the in the nineties. Well, I, I watched it. I watched it just recently. I'd not heard of it before I heard that you were coming on the show i have to admit and i and i was thinking a the relationship between the kid and his father at the beginning of is just heartbreaking um when you realize what's going on once you've set up the whole thing before you get it and i love the twist of the father the actor who plays the father dabney coleman thank you um you see, your memory is better than mine. I only watched it the other day. Um, also plays the kid's imaginary spy friend. Um, I think it's incredibly effective. I th- I was surprised because I thought, oh, this is a Jack kind Black. of a Disney kids movie when I first started watching it. But actually, it goes quite dark. I I I was trying to go for 
for it being moving at the end, you know, moving into tears. Right. I, I think the, I think the dramatic intention was right. How 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 well it it it, it, it turned out. How you know how thoroughly mm. was you know actuated. I don't really know. I mean, but I know that a lot of people loved it. So yeah. yeah. You know, so anyway, so that was where I got the idea right. for Fright Night. Right. And and then I had an experience with a with a British director who you will know. I wrote a script called Scream for Help. And Michael Winner was hired to direct it. I subsequently had lunch with him at at at, at one of the best restaurants in LA. Because he was a gourmet, a gourmand or a gourmet, yeah. yeah, yeah. And what Michael did was, I think, because of the success of Death Wish, uh, he thought that the more dialogue he cut out, the stronger the movie was. So as as he said to me at dinner, he said, "Well, I, you know, I I, I shot your script." I mean, you know, so you, you can't blame me for how it turned out. It turned out almost unreleasable, by the way. So what he did was he cut all the dialogue between the characters. So you never understood why what was happening or the character arcs or why people were doing what they were doing. And he because he, he tried to take a a uh, it was it was a girl discovers that her stepfather is having an affair and is trying to murder her mother. Right. And nobody believes her. It's a variation, I guess you could say, on Fright Night. But by the time Michael Winter got through with it, it looked like an action film or Home Alone, you know, with, with, with a kid trying to survive, a stepfather trying to kill her in the house. But it didn't have anything to do with what it didn't have any of the the texture, any of the acting scenes that I that I wrote. And Michael was was to me over lunch was terribly charming. I mean, you know, he was I I you know, and I'm I'm not I'm not a of I I really don't understand British society. But he he I don't know if you call him upper class or not, but he he had uh, mm -hmm. he had expensive tastes. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, there, there was obviously a lot of money there, and his 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 passion was food and wine. Yeah, and I'm from mid-state New York farm country, and I don't know anything about those things. You know, I still, I, I, I sort of, you know, I'm, a, I've sort of been around people, you know, who can do that, but I've, I've never been terrific at that. Anyway, uh, after the experience of Scream for Help. I thought, well, <laughs> I thought, well, I couldn't sell this great idea called Fright Night. My, my last script was just savaged by the director. I've always wanted to direct. I can't do any worse. And I was very hot as a screenwriter. And I wrote Fright Night. And I, I, I probably had maybe the best experience I've ever had writing a screenplay with Fright Night. Because I was tickled pink and I was laughing half the time. 
I was on the floor like this saying, oh, that's so funny. That's so funny. I mean, I just thought it was just a delightful, delightful. I, and I was writing something that I loved because it was me or my experience growing up watching Hammer films in the late 50s into the 60s, the Hammer films, and the AIP films. Right. And so I, I, so I sent it out there and, and Hollywood, the studios offered to buy it if I didn't direct. And because of the experience with, with Scream for Help, I, I just thought, well, I can't do any worse. And if I'm, if I'm going to direct, now's the time. I think I was, I was like 41, I think 41, 42 years old, which now, of course, seems impossibly young. And, and so I insisted on directing it. And um, uh, the head of Columbia was a man named Guy McElwain, and I had met him socially back in the 70s through another Brit, Pamela Mason. Do you know the name Pamela Mason? Not familiar. She was the wife of James Mason. Ah. And she was British, and James, who was British also, had married well. Pamela Mason was the daughter of an Englishman who owned one of the major studios in London. And I don't remember the studio my, myself, but Ealing, possibly I can, I can check it. I'll check it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, look her, look her up because she became famous here. She was one of the first talk show hosts, hosts on radio. Right. And, and, and was, and was, she really made a cultural impact and her daughter, Portland Mason was, was, was a, a celebrity almost in her own right because the parents had raised her uh, uh, in such a progressive fashion. Right, right. And I was invited to the house through another girl that I met when I was going out acting on, on, on jobs acting, and she was working for a casting director, Guiler, Sue Guiler. Sue got G-Y-L-G-I-L-E-R. Right. Who was another famous Hollywood family. Her brother was a successful screenwriter, and I don't remember his name. Anyway, Pamela Mason had a Sunday soiree, but it, they called them something else in those days. But the, the most interesting people in Hollywood were invited every Sunday. There's they used to have them in, in Paris, right. you know, you'd ha- have a hostess and they would have very interesting intellectual uh-huh. and cultural elite people there. And I was invited to a number of those where once again, I walked around with my mouth hanging open, but I met Guy McElwain, who was a huge agent. He represented Steven Spielberg and he ended up running Columbia. So when I came in for the meeting on Fright Night as a writer director, he recognized me from six or seven years previous at these, at these Sunday meetings and at the Sunday meeting at these Sunday meetings, I met the British critic who was such a huge cultural figure at the time who died of emphysema. And, but he was, he was, he was, he was absolutely a, a giant culturally in, in England and then he'd come over here and I don't remember his name either. But anyway, I mean, it was, it was, it was, 
I meant I meant Gregory Peck, Milton Berle, uh, Johnny Carson's sidekick, uh, famous John uh, John Dean, the guy from 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 the Nixon tr- tr- trials, you know, who, <laughs> who who stabbed Nixon in the back was his name. His last name was Dean. Yes, but I mean, it was it was this it was this amazing potpourri of of of, of intellectual and, and writers and actors and and it was old hollywood again these people these people were all much much older than i was i was there with the children of 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 of, of, of pamela of pamela mason but anyway i met guy McElwain. so when i went in for the interview on friday night at columbia guy who was running columbia at the time says ah i know you and it gave me a kind of credibility and I had become very successful as a screenwriter, and he took up he took a roll of the dice, and gave me gave me Fright Night to direct. Wow! Yeah, I mean, so I mean, it, it just luck, but but a lot of hard work too. Yeah. The uh, the the and 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 it was they had this they had one slot left in their release schedule, and they put in the throwaway film. That they put no money into, and it was called Fright Night. Okay, uh-huh. and, and and shooting at the same time, on the same lot, it was the old uh, David Selznick lot down on in in, in the, down in Culver City, and uh, the big movie with the that the Columbia had all their hopes on was called Perfect, which I think had just finished shooting, and they put a lot of money into that. And that was uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and uh, John Travolta. Right. Okay. And that was that. That was what they thought was going to be their killer movie, because the two actors were so bloody hot. Yeah. And and what happened with Fright Night was they they uh, they had had a huge success with Ghostbusters, and the the hottest. Uh, effects team in Hollywood at the time was Richard Edland. And they thought, well, we'll keep them on salary here at Columbia so they can do our bigger effects productions. And in the meantime, we'll throw them this bone called Fright Night to give them a few bucks to keep them on salary. So I ended up with the premier effects team in Hollywood, this, they're just coming off of Ghostbusters. Wow. Onto my little film for Friday Night. That's luck. Yeah. Okay, because I didn't know. Well, I knew, but I didn't, you know. I. But so they brought in, it was not only Richard Edlin doing the visual effects, but it was Steve Johnson and Randy Cook doing the in-camera effects, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the blood, the gore, the, 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 the transition from the werewolf. But c- coming, you know, the... Uh, 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 Chris Sarandon jumping off the balcony mm. and turning into the bat on the way down. <clears throat> yeah. That's a shadow on the wall. And that's Richard Edlin doing, you know, doing with, 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 with a printer doing, uh, a doing the, the transition. Yeah. Yeah. Matt, Matt printer. The, uh, so, I mean, extra, just an ext- extraordinary luck. And then I ended up with a wonderful cast and I also ended up with a solid two weeks of rehearsals. You know, I mean, well, you know, I did just, I had a, I had, I just, everybody associated with that film 
uh, you know, all these people who are now gone, but whatever, everybody was pulling in the same direction. Everybody was terribly supportive. We didn't have any money, but we had time. We were shooting in Hollywood. The, the production manager, line producer, was a wonderful guy called Jerry Barowitz, and he was terrific. The head of production at the studio was, was, was put, he put together this wonderful team of production for me. And I'm just, I mean, so it was blessed. Yeah. I mean, and the whole thing was blessed. And I've never had that much luck in any movie ever since. You know, I mean, so, so Fright Night, and if I say so myself, the script was terrific. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> and I, and, and I, and I ended up, I, I got Chris Sarandon and Roddy McDowell. And Roddy was like having a supportive uncle. You know, I, I, it's hard to explain, but he, he, he was terribly supportive and he led the actors. He led the, he, he led the team and Chris Sarandon, who was the, the most heavyweight actor involved, who I had to go through a lot of work to convince him because he was gun shy. And I can tell you why he was gun shy. He got wiped out with a movie called lipstick, which hadn't ended well, which was Michael winter again. And Michael Winter had killed him, you know, acting-wise in that movie. You'd have to ask Chris. Well, you had him on. Yeah. Or you have him yeah. on for Christmas Eve. Yeah. Too bad. If you'd known this, you could have asked him. Uh, <laughs> would have been, been a he dark. Mentioned, he, he mentioned his. No, funnily enough, he, it came up in conversation as being did. the it worst. Did. The worst experience. Well, but that was, his that was his chance of being a movie star. And if that had worked. But then he came, he came back and he gave a brilliant performance in Fright Night. So, so anyway, this, this little film that nobody was paying attention to, all of a sudden, it cut together and people started looking at it and they went, oh my goodness. I remember Guy McElwain saying to me, as we walked out of the first screening where I showed it to all the executives, he said to somebody ahead of me, it's going to be ironic if my time as head of Columbia is going to be known, not for any of these big movies that we've done, but for Fright Night. This, this, but that's the ambivalence because you got to remember horror films were always the redheaded stepchild. Right. I mean, they were always looked down on. Right. You know, I mean, and, and everybody, I could go on and on. And, anyway, I'm talking and I shouldn't. You're more interesting than I am, I'm sure. <laughs> it's so not true, Tom. This is so not true. And, and we're, we've not even got as far as child's play. But before we get to child's play, I did want to, two questions. I read recently that you're working on a sequel to Fright Night. I am right. When I finish talking to you, I will go back to the book. Yes, that's right. Right. It's going well. Yes, it is. In between other projects and things coming up and and all that, right? And the bus the busyness of trying to make a living at the same time. Sure. I mean, I mean, the, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm trying to write novels. I would like to write novels because they are the thing themselves. And I've been trying to write novels since I was 13 years old. 
I gave up in despair that I couldn't write novels and wrote screenplays. Right. And right. Screen, screenplays finally are a blueprint for the movie. They're not the thing themselves. Yeah. You yeah. know, and the secondly, in terms of, 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 of business, the intellectual property is yours if you write a book on spec. Yeah. It isn't yours if you write a screenplay for hire. Yeah. Then that somebody's paid you. But yeah. almost everything I've written has been an original, even though it's been there's been a screenplay preceding me or there's been a book or whatever. Everything I've pretty much written has been an original out of my head. And I I but I didn't get paid that way anyway. Right, right, right. Okay. Hard, well, cruel facts of life. Yes, yes. But I did want to ask you, as I, said, I do want to talk about Charles Play if we may br uh, briefly, but Fatal Beauty, in 1987, you directed Whoopi Goldberg in a film called Fatal Beauty. Um, and I have to say, I again, it was not one I was familiar with. I was ex blown away by Whoopi Goldberg. Because you've managed to get out of her both the comedic performance that I think we're used to seeing, but incredibly dramatic, moving performance as well. How did you get involved with the Fatal Beauty? Everybody in Hollywood that I knew, and these, these again are, are Brits, Guy Green and his wife, Josephine. Guy Green directed me in Walk in the Spring Rain. He also won the Academy Award in 1948 for Great I think Great Expectations. The David Lean film? Yes. Yeah. Great Expectations. He was yes. a cinematographer. He was David Lean's cinematographer, Guy Green. Wow. And they were part of the Hollywood establishment. Now it's all probably gone, but these were all the the ladies who lunched at the Academy Awards and everybody, and I respected them enormously because they were the older, especially him, older role models. Mm -hmm. The guy was a cinematographer who became a director, but it was really always a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant cinematographer. But they all told me that I had to immediately get out of horror because I'd had a success with Fright Night. If I didn't immediately take something that was out of the genre, right. I would be doing horror forever. Right. And it was the ghetto. It was the, it was the basement that got no respect. You'd never get an Academy Award nomination, all this stuff. But I mean, I mean, I didn't really understand, but I, well, I sort of understood. And interestingly enough, John Landis is a friend, and I, I I saw recently. I don't know. I was I was doing something with John, and John feels the same way about comedy. He feels that comedy gets no respect in Hollywood, which always to me. I mean, you know, he was to me he was one of the great directors of the eighties and nineties into the two thousands, but he felt that that. That the genre he was king of comedy was the one that, that was always looked down on. Anyway, they all told me that I all my all my the people who were older than I was who knew more told me I immediately had to get out of horror. So I took the I took uh, 
I took Fatal Beauty. Fatal Beauty had started out as what they call guns and garter belts of the genre. And it was share. When I signed on, it was share. But I had seen just previous to that, I'd seen the color purple, and which I thought was just wonderful. And I thought so many of the actresses were great, Ofra, mm-hmm. Ofra and, and Whoopi, especially Whoopi. And Cher bailed on the movie. And so I didn't have a star. And I was going to say, well, I'll move on to something else. And Alan Ladd Jr. called me up, who was head of the studio, and said, what about Whoopi Goldberg? My first reaction was, well, yes, it'd be great if we had a comedy. If we had Beverly Hills Cop, it'd be great, but we don't have that. We have a noir thriller. How are you going to get Whoopi to do, you know, I mean, you know. And I loved her work. I got talked into it, okay? Mm -hmm. And the movie was my memory is the movie was critically savaged because they didn't want Whoopi Goldberg playing a tough ass cop. They wanted her to be, Oh, I know. I, I don't know what's proper to say, Nick anymore. You know, I'm, I'm sort of beyond PC, mm-hmm. you know, but I mean, they, I guess they, they wanted her to be the good black woman. You know, they didn't want her to be the black cop that was shooting bad guys, which was the script. Yeah. You know, so I had a great, I had a, an interesting time working with her. The, uh, and the studio at the same time was pushing me to make it comedic, but I didn't have a comedic script, you know, so uh. I would, so I, I was dancing a line. And at the same time, Whoopi's impulses were for drama. And there was drama in the script. So mm-hmm. I was trying to get that at the same time. And I thank you for saying that about how, how great she was. I thought she gave a terrific performance. And Whoopi told me that, you know, it was her, it was in terms of performance, it was her most praised movie from her fans, which I think is terrific. But it seems to me now that it's, it's forgotten. Like like Cloak and Dagger is forgotten, mm-hmm. and I thought Cloak and Dagger was a hell of a movie. So you know, I I don't. It's hard figuring out why some and why not others. But anyway, I I had a great time with Whoopi, and I I think she's a terrifically talented person. Sure, sure. But what, I'll tell you what she is. If you want comedy from her, you got to write the lines, okay? But mm-hmm. she is a fabulous mime, okay. I mean, she, she, she is, she, she'll have you on the floor with that. You know, she just, you know, I don't know where that comes from. So, you know, she's just very, very talented, but it's, it's, she's not Robin Williams either. No, you know, it's not that overt comedy because there's a, there's an element of seriousness and pathos to her. Yeah. Her real name is Karen Johnson, I think. And she was on welfare out of Berkeley, California which is where she came from. Wow. She, yeah. 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 Wow. But she's, a, she's a, she's a great, a great mime, you know? So anyway. Right. Okay. Well, again, briefly, cause I'm conscious of being running over time. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Listen, I mean, I've really, I just don't want to keep you too long, but we can't not talk about child's play where you 
got to uh, work with Chris Sarandon again. Um, and you've probably answered an awful lot of these questions, but I was curious about how you found Alex Vincent to play the boy. Because that's an extraordinary performance from somebody who's really very young. Seven years old. I went and I, 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 I was casting here in L.A., and I couldn't find a real boy, a real little boy that had a vulnerability. And I went back to New York City, and I was looking at kids there. And I remember, and Alex came in, and I don't know, he was, how do you say, there was something that was a little bit depressed about him at seven years old. Mm. And I remember getting under the table and playing with toys with him. And he took direction. I mean, he, I mean, if I if I told him or communicated with him, he would try to do what I said. But he stayed real. Now later on, I found out his parents were in the middle of a divorce, and I think at seven years old, I think that was the emotional turmoil that I sensed in him, mm. or, or or what was vulnerable about him, and. That's how I found him, and that's why I cast him because right. he wasn't—he wasn't a kid actor. I don't think he'd ever had a. He, I think he'd done some commercials, but I don't think he'd ever had a part before. Right. You know, and so, and he was—he—he he was, and I could—I could bring him to tears, which I needed for one scene. Mm -hmm. That scene where Chucky's coming and he's locked in the in the, in the in the hospital room in the mental institution, and I yes. so I, I I I knew that I could do that, and he always stayed to me believable. There was no gloss about him. Mm. You know, there was there was there was there was a pathos about him that was real, and he you know he hadn't gone to the Disney School of Acting, right, right. It is extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah, an amazing, amazing, amazing performance and, you know, a hugely successful film. Now, before we wrap up, um, and I've got some set questions I'd like to ask you called The Luggage in the Crypt. But before we get to that, you were talking earlier on about your novel, The Notch, which is, when was this published? I think it was the beginning of... I think it was, oh, it was, I'll tell you when it was, it was just as COVID came out in March because it got very, very good trade reviews. And I thought, oh my goodness, I'm on my way. And I got very, very good blurbs from people like Clive Barker and John Landis and Greg Nicotero. And I mean, I mean, really people said lovely things. And so I, they launched the book and COVID hits and COVID kills everything. And just buried it, buried you. This is this. So everybody who's listening, who's aspiring, you you need a bit of luck. You know, yeah. I mean, if if COVID hadn't hit, the book would have been much better known than it is, and it would have sold more. So I mean, you know, the and the review I got great in Publishers Weekly. I got a great review. I got a great review in the book, whatever the trade publications are. Right. But it would have sold the libraries off of the trade publication reviews, the libraries were shut down. I mean, so, you know, I mean, this is, so there's very frustrating and all I could say to myself, to you, to anybody else out there who's aspiring, 
all you can do is keep on trying. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know what else any of us do. And I, it doesn't get any easier. Yeah. Truth. Yeah. Truth. Yeah. Can you give us a just an idea of what the book's about? Uh, you know, oh, your blurb. Well, it, it's a, it's a, it's a. The notch is about. It's about an opportunity for redemption, which I'm big on. The uh, it's a, a a a boy appears out of the sun in the in the middle of the desert, and he never says a word, but he seems to to, to have a, a a journey that he's on. And as he, he's heading for, he's heading for the city for Tucson and people pick him up. They give him rides, uh, they drop him off, whatever. And whoever he's with, if they have something wrong with them and it goes from having a hangnail to a, to a guy who's, 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 who's badly burned his hand, he touches them and they're healed. So you have an 11-year-old boy who's autistic, seemingly autistic, who's a healer. And then in the big city, he sees, he sees a girl's pet dog is hit by a car and killed. And the girl is brokenhearted and weeping. And the, 11, the, 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 the 10, 11-year-old boy walks over and he touches the dog. And the dog comes back to life. And people record it on their video phones on their iPhones and it goes worldwide okay at the same time a pandemic hits and i wrote this before covid so i had no idea but a pandemic hits that i call the coughing sickness and hundreds of thousands of people start to die of this pandemic but at the same time everybody who's seen this there's these videos of this boy healing the dogs getting testaments from other people and they never clearly see his face. They see him from the back. They see him from the side, but they don't see his face. He becomes the most valuable boy in the world because everybody who's sick, including the rich and powerful want this kid to touch them. But at the same time, he gets picked up by a bunch of teenage thieves, thieves and whores. Okay. And they think they've they think they've got something, and they think the kid is a fake. They think that he's he just looks like, and they're going to sell him to the loan shark and pay off their debts. The loan shark has stomach cancer. They're going to get rid of. They're going to get the loan shark back that way. So they sell him the loan shark. He touches the loan shark. Nothing happens. The loan shark throws him out. Almost kills him and throws him out. And then about three or four hours later, the stomach cancer is gone. So now the loan shark wants the kid and the kid is with five terrible teenage, you know, whores and thieves. And they start to realize that they, the, 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 the kids start to realize they have the real boy. Yeah. And now it becomes a moral choice. Wow. What do they do? Yeah. Do they sell them for the money? to the people who are going to use them. And every time the kid heals somebody, it almost exhausts them. And they realize that if the kid is forced to do two or three healings in a row, it's going to kill him. He needs time to recover. So it's a moral choice. And the other thing that happens is the CIA and the FBI and everybody gets a hold of, knows what wants this kid. And all these, all these great, you know, all the, the national defense industry and all this, they realize that there's a correlation 
between when the kid does something good, somebody does something good to the kid, the coughing sickness stops. When somebody does something bad to the kid, it takes off again, killing hundreds of thousands more well, don't people. Don't tell me anymore. This this sounds so exciting. Yeah, and uh, you know, so I mean, you know, I think it's just terrific, and everybody who's read it has loved it, and I hope that the word gets out. But that's what I've been doing, and now I'm doing this. Then I'm writing the sequel to Fright Night, and <laughs> I'm writing that as a well. I I have because it was an original. I have the the literary and dramatic rights. I don't have the movie rights, but I have the literary and dramatic rights to Fright Night. They're mine. Somehow, by the grace of God, I held on to them. So I'm writing the novel, the sequel to Fright Night is a novel. And that's what I'm doing now. And thank you so much for all this. This is really nice of you. Is there there anything else I can say, Nick? Just very briefly, if you'd mind playing a very brief game, I'm just going to throw you some questions. If I ask you to narrow down choices, a favorite film, basically. Oh boy. Oh boy. Favorite. Well, the, the psycho was one of the, was, 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 it was the, the, the huge discovery for me watching films, but I wouldn't say it was, I don't know if I'd say it was the favorite or not being there. Uh, you know, I mean, I love that. I mean, there's but, um, anything with Peter Sellers and it Sellers, yeah. All the, all the detective films, all those great, you know, I mean, huge films that I enjoyed, loved, Anything with, well, not anything, but almost anything with Humphrey Bogart. People have forgotten how wonderful, you know, Ingrid Bergman was. I mean, those all those Hitchcock films yeah. that she did, the, the one the, the one with, with Cary Grant. I was, that's an endless list. Right. I'm sorry. You know, no, 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 no. It's, it's always. Inspector Clouseau. You know, <laughs> anything for a laugh. <laughs> I like to I like to tr- challenge my guests if I may. A book, any particular book? Oh boy, Dune. 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 I can't By wait to see the movie. Yeah, I, they've never they've never been able to pull the movie off yet. No, and because of the new one, I remember reading it and just going, "Wow, this is world creating." And oh, was, yeah. it was a, it was the last sort of amazing book. I've read it about five or six, I've reread it about five or six times. Right. Trying to figure out how he did it because none of his sequels were as good. Yeah. Yeah. Often the way. I mean, I mean, I mean, look, the, the Hellbound Heart, five, you know, is a novella. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. The Stand by Stephen King, life changing. I'd never seen that. Stephen Stephen brought horror to the middle class. The, the, the horror now is, is one of the most popular genres and most consistently remunerative. Thank you, Stephen King. <laughs> I, you know, I, I mean, you know, and yeah. people, people because they're younger, they don't have a historical perspective on this. Yeah. But before Stephen, horror novels were 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 were, were in the basement. They were they were something that the nice people covers. didn't read. Dennis Wheatley. Um, they were most in the UK. It was Dennis Wheatley novels. Well, that's that's the Devil Rides Out. Yeah. What, what, what all those? Yes, yeah. he was. Ter- yeah, yeah. He was terrific, right? Yeah. Was, oh yeah. No. Was, Den- was Dennis Wheatley com- comparable to Stephen King? No, completely different. I mean, De- it's Dennis Wheatley is a um, much older generation, apart from anything else. But huge again, middle class, but very English, incredibly English, um, and uh, yeah. And upper, you know, 
public school. Um, and, and really interesting, but I used to, I read them all under the bedclothes with my tool. Well, I, I read a couple, Inspector General, something like that. Sounds he, I, I, I know. Well, I got interested in him maybe 10 years ago and read some of them. Right. But, you know, yes, but because he wrote, yes. And he, yeah. yes, I know. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, what? he, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, I didn't, but an, an album, a musical album. Are you fond of music? Yeah. I love music, but what do you, what did you say? An album, any particular album you'd recommend to people? Oh, music album. Yeah. Oh my God. No, not at this point. I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, streaming has, has destroyed music. I mean, I'm, I listen to music, but I'm listening to, I'm listening to the, to the, to the rock and rollers of, of my era. Right. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't think that, you know, that, I said, you know, I'm Fleetwood Mac, Bob's, you know, Seagard, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, God, they've, you know, the Beatles, you know. I mean, now they're selling off their catalogs. Bob Dylan just sold his catalog for $300 million. Yes. Yeah, and, you know, in, in my too. generation, he was the culture. Yeah, he was the cultural touchstone. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, so I don't, that business is in tumult, too. Yeah. What about a favorite food? Do you have a favorite food? Oh, God. <laughs> Tomato soup and grilled cheese sandwiches, which are the comfort food in America. Oh, tomato soup, cup of soups we have down, I have downstairs at least once a week with crumpets <laughs> in my case. But yeah. Well, that, that's, that's why Tony Perkins in Psycho 2 has a, has a toasted cheese sandwich. Because that, that they, in, in in Australia they call it grilled cheese. They call toasted cheese in Australia, but it's it's a comfort food. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What about a piece of visual art? Oh boy, oh boy, the two hands of Rodin, the hands together praying. Yes, yeah, yeah. I know. I've seen. I've, I've the, been the, to the, the Rodin the, museum, and I think I've I think they've got a replica there. But I know that I know the one you mean. It's a beautiful piece, absolutely beautiful piece. And what about a luxury, a comfort thing, something? Oh boy! Just to make life you know, sweet. I have them, and I never wear them. I mean, I, I I have. I got a Rolex watch during Fright Night. I think it's called the Pantera. Right. And. I don't wear it because it's too clunky and I find that I type so much that, that I keep my hands, you know, totally, you know, without, yep. I, I went over and did a podcast with a Danielle Harris, right. who's a, yes, she's just <laughs> terrific. Yeah. And her husband trades or did trade in Rolexes and I brought it with me for him to, 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 to value. And I almost fell over. He told me that the, the Pantera that I bought in 1984 or five while I was making Fright Night is now retail 40,000, wholesale, wholesale, wholesale 40,000, retail $50,000. I almost fell over. You know, but I, but I don't, I don't wear it. I don't. I don't care about cars. 
I don't care about clothes. You know, I mean, whatever's whatever whatever's wrong, it all went over my head. Right. You know, I I, right. I, I the this this the status symbols went over my head. Right. But I love people. I love people, and I love listening to people and talking to them and, and learning their stories. But right. I never. I mean, I mean, you have people who, who, a lot of people who know you now, right? Because mm-hmm. of your work and your career. Yeah. Okay. Well, at the, at the me too, you know. And so, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't feel any need to try to impress people with with worldly goods. No. You know. No. I mean, I wish that I, I wish that I had the money to buy fine art, but. You know, I mean, I, I can't, I can't, I, time has become the most valuable thing I have, sure. Nicholas. Sure. Time. Sure. I don't okay. know how you feel about it, but yes. Yeah. Yes. No, I, I mean, I think on that note, I really should let you go. Cause I'm sorry. We've gone on way too long. Um, I'm so sorry. I hope, no, I no, please don't boring. apologize. This is, I, I was just absolutely enthralled listening to you, Tom. Thank you so much for being so generous well, I, with your time. I thank you for the excellent questions. And I hope I haven't pontificated too much. <laughs> no, I, I hope that I hope that I've been encouraging to all the younger people out there who are who are looking for, you know, if you look, it's we were blessed, Nicholas. Yeah. I mean, you know, and if you if you want if, if, Clive is Clive, Clive with all of his health problems is blessed too. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, with what he's done. Yes. You know, the, no, I, yeah, I'm, I'm a hundred percent behind you on that one. I think just be, being grateful also, I think is one of the secrets to having that. I'm looking life. and what I wrote the notch about the notch is about redemption. Right. You know, it's about making moral choices. I think that, you know, I think that we're very, very lucky yeah. Both of us and people like us that we've had lives that have been as satisfying and gratifying as they have, even though they've been very, very up and down. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. I, I personally have a great deal to be thankful for. And I'm thrilled that, that you're talking to me. And I'm even more thrilled that people are going to be listening to this. Can you imagine that? It's wonderful. It's it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Tom, listen, you need to go back to writing. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Take God care. God bless everybody out there. Yeah. And you too, Nicholas. Take God care. bless. Thank you very much. I'm going to leave now. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you again to Tom Holland. I'm really looking forward to receiving. Thank you again to Tom Holland. I'm really looking forward to reading that sequel to Fright Night. Join me next time on The Chattering Hour as I talk with Darren Lynn Bowsman, known for directing Saw 2, 3, and 4, St. Agatha, Repo, the genetic opera, and the latest incarnation of the Saw franchise, Spiral. Join me then, and in the meantime, stay safe and well. The Chattering Hour, hosted by Nicholas Vince, is produced by Chris Rowe Management and Tea Time Productions. Producer Chris Rowe, with production support from Jared Friedrich and Amanda Rome West. Composer Kevin McLeod, copyright Tea Time Productions. Mm-hmm.